Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Greg Smith. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Henry. It's a pleasure to be here. We're excited to have Greg. Greg is an entrepreneur, and he's passionate about education. He's also a lawyer, an instructor, and he considers himself a lifelong student. He's the CEO, I believe, yes, and co-founder of Thinkific. Thinkific is a software platform that makes it easy to create, market, and sell online courses. Greg was working as a corporate lawyer for one of the largest firms in the country when he launched an online course as a side project. And then revenues from his course soon surpassed his salary as a lawyer, and Greg jumped into online education full-time. Since then, Greg and his team at Thinkific have helped thousands of coaches, authors, speakers, and companies create and sell their own online courses as a way to build their brands and their revenues. And we're actually a customer as well. We just uh, signed on to the Thinkific platform for online learning programs that we're about to release. So oh, excellent. Yeah, That's great so to hear. Absolutely. Thanks. Glad about that. My pleasure. So yeah. In this episode, we're going to dive into Greg's entrepreneurial journey, which is an interesting one. And then we will focus on a couple of topics, primarily his thoughts on growing a business as he has done with Thinkific in particular and online learning platforms. What's that all about? Uh, Greg, I believe you reside in Vancouver. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Vancouver, Canada. Fantastic. So Greg Smith, welcome to this show. Thanks, Henry. <laughs> We are glad to have you. I'm glad to, to get you. It's been a while with the scheduling, so I appreciate your patience on that. Um, so let's let's take us back, if you would, and share with us a bit of the journey. You went to school, got your bachelor's in commerce and finance, I believe, and then on to law school. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, actually, I worked for a while in between uh, commerce and law, traveled for about a year, okay. worked for a little while, did some various different things, and then and jumped back into uh, law school after that. Was that always the plan, or, or what, uh, what happened that you decided to go to law school? No, law school was really never in the plan. I think I met a lawyer that I admired and uh, saw some opportunities there. I always, I mean, I went into business and commerce because I liked business. And then I think I started talking to some corporate lawyers and understanding what they got to do. And, and what I saw in it was that as a corporate lawyer, a securities lawyer, which is what I practiced, you get to jump into all these different companies at the most exciting points in the life of the company. So they're being bought, they're being sold, they're buying something, they're raising millions or billions of dollars. You jump in, you help them out for a few weeks or a couple of months and, and learn their industry and the company. You talk to the board, you talk to the management, and then you move into the next client. Uh, and you maintain that relationship and keep working with them, but you come in for those really exciting deals. So that's kind of what got me excited and, and got me to make that switch into law. Yeah, so similar to how sales is, where you, you jump in and then you're, you're on to the next opportunity. Um, do you find now in your business a lot of advantage to having that law knowledge and background? I, I think the in the early days, there was there, there's always a few benefits from understanding the law, but the bigger benefit for me was the the deals and understanding how businesses work. And I think in the three years that I practiced, I probably saw more deals and uh at corporate transactions than most CEOs, even of big publicly traded companies would see in a lifetime. So that was a pretty amazing experience to be able to see that from the inside of the businesses. Yeah. So my daughter just started college and she's studying business. I had her brainwashed in high school that she was going to get her law degree, but she has since <laughs> told me she's not. Um, <laughs> it's not a bad thing not to. <laughs> I know. It's a hard thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard stuff. Those three years 
or whatever it takes is hard stuff. What, how did you find the, um, the discipline to get through those tough years of getting through law school? Is that something uh, that you naturally had? I had a lot of fun with it, to be honest. I loved it. Uh, it was it was a ton of fun. The camaraderie at law school was amazing for me. We had a you know a small group of thirty people who started together, and we took every class together for the first year. And by the end of that, I just had such a tight knit group of friends that it it made everything else seem easy going through. Uh, and I, I enjoyed what I was learning. So for me, it was it was a lot of fun going through it. Yeah. And then, what was your vision? Did you imagine working for a firm, opening your own firm? What did you think you would do then with the law degree? Uh, coming through law school, I was definitely targeted on getting a job at a big firm working in corporate or securities law, and, and that's the way it played out. But I think that entrepreneurial side has been there since even before law school, that it was just, I wasn't really sure where to point it. I'd done a few ventures even before law school, but uh, hadn't figured out when and where and how. And it wasn't until I got into the practice of law and was practicing that it sort of came back to me. Uh, that I still really wanted to start something of my own. Right. And that's when you started around that time, if I've got the time frame correct, the side project, if you will, on the online training class, right? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd actually started the online course right around the time I started law school. So it had oh, been there wow. for a long time, okay. but it was really just a little side project, passion project, you know, a few hours a week on the side, not doing too much. Uh, it, it slowly grew, uh, but uh, but yeah, it got started pretty early. I think it was uh, 2003, 2004, something like that. I got started in that space. Yeah. And then in, if I got the date right in 2009, you co-founded Moving Media Group. Tell us about that. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, going into that, that we did uh, taxis, our advertising screens inside taxis. So we replaced the headrest with a touchscreen in the taxi, and uh, people could watch ads, watch videos, get entertained, interact with it. Uh, I think it's still out there and going. At one point, right as I was leaving, they were hitting about 5,000 cabs across the country, so it was getting pretty big. Um, but uh, my passion really has always been in education. So when I had the opportunity to start an education company, it uh, it it bit me pretty hard and that's what I jumped into. Yeah, but if I got the dates right, you left the law practice and that's when you went into moving media group. Do I have the dates correct on that? Yeah, yeah I was practicing law then uh, that the, the course was doing quite well, which I think is what partly allowed me to, to leave the practice of law because I had that other revenue coming in. Uh, jumped into moving media group with a couple of buddies actually from law school. I think I was involved in that for about a year and a half. Uh, a little bit of overlap towards the end of my legal career because I started helping them out um, as I was just sort of finishing up practice and uh, and then moved straight from that into Thinkific and creating online courses. Okay. And so w did you sell out from Moving Media? How did that uh, separation happen? I did, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm out 100%. And then I see also Alpha Score seminars and some other business ventures. What what are all those other things that you started or <laughs> dabbled in? You did some you did some good research here. This is good. I like it. Um, I I don't always get. It's funny. I get on a lot of these shows, and I I uh, you don't often get people who've done a lot of the background research or even pulled up your LinkedIn or pulled these things in. So uh, with Alpha Score, so Alpha Score is my first course. That's the company that holds my first course, which is the LSAT course. So that's what we started early days when I was just getting into law school, uh, and that's still there now. If you go to alphascore.com, that's where my online LSAT course is. It's all hosted on Thinkific now, uh, but originally we built a completely custom platform to do it uh, just because there wasn't anything out there that was very good with it. And that uh, I definitely owe a lot to AlphaScore and my brother who helped me start that because that's kind of 
the thing that I've leveraged to be able to do all the other things that I, I wanted to do in life uh, as a starting point. It even AlphaScore kind of even initially funded uh, Thinkific when we were getting started because we had enough course revenue from AlphaScore to live on and, and help fund the business and getting going with it. Amazing. And you're still making some money off of that course. Obviously, I'm sure you've evolved it and updated it, but that's still an active course. Yeah, yeah, it's still it's still running and it still makes uh, five figures a month in in sales with uh, probably spend about an hour a month on it. Uh, so it's a pretty nice uh, passive revenue stream yeah, that's, there. That's what's amazing to me for our listeners. If, if, if you have any opportunity or think about how you could deploy something like this, because when we're creating this kind of IP that's so repeatable, I mean, this is even if it's just a side stream like you had initially, it really leverages those skills that we have, the knowledge that we have. And of course, now your platform makes that whole thing easier, especially from the marketing perspective. But it just goes to show you how powerful that can be and and how um, how long it could live. Right. The, the 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 evergreen effect of it can be quite powerful. Definitely. And that's, that's certainly an element I love. I, I'm constantly surprised at how long it's lasted with very little effort on our part. Um, and actually, a funny thing is, is because we had it, it inspired people to call me and say, hey, how are you doing this? Uh, so, for example, there was this guy who was creating an SAT course um, back way before we started Thinkific. And he, he saw AlphaScore and he said, how are you? How are you doing your own online course? I want to create my own SAT course. And so we tried to work with him, but we didn't have any way of really getting him into our system and we just couldn't really work out a deal. And I just looked last week and he's one of the bigger users of Thinkific. So he's got a huge program in the SAT now and, and he's on Thinkific. And I haven't spoken to him in six, seven years and he just popped up on the radar here uh, having some great success. So it was really cool to see that that initial customer kind of potential customer phone call that gave us the idea a year or so before we even created Think of It because now come full circle and they're now one of our bigger customers. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. Great story. So so obviously then in 2012, you found uh, Thinkific co-founded with your brother, I believe? That's right, yeah, yeah. Now, if I understand correctly, he's no longer uh, actively involved in the business, but just tell us a little bit about that. And where I'm getting at is I, I'm always interested in how people work with partners, especially when it's family members, there's a whole other <laughs> dynamic, right? And yeah. I've done all of it, which is what everybody tells you not to do, right? Yeah. But, but tell us about that experience and whether you would do it again and any kind of tips or advice that you would have for people who are thinking about partnering, in particular, partnering with a family member. Yeah, so it's it's there's there's great things and terrible things about it. Uh, the 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 terrible things is that at the time we actually lived together as roommates and uh, worked on a business together. And we don't work, you know, 30, 40, 50 hour weeks. We work a lot more than that. And so we're working really hard on a project together. We really in the early days had no idea where it was going or exactly what we were going to do or how we were going to make money. So when things didn't go well, we certainly had our disagreements and arguments. Uh, and so that was a bit tough, I think, having that within, you know, with a, with a family member. Uh, plus, you know, he's my little brother, so we know each other well. We know each other's buttons, so you can take those arguments a little further than you might otherwise with someone you don't live with and grew up with. But on the flip side, because he was my brother, we didn't even have a shareholders agreement. It was a handshake agreement, and we've honored it to this day, and everything's been great. Uh, we Every Sunday, we have family dinner with the bigger family. I've got... Um, 
I've got eight brothers and a sister and, and uh, now all the grandkids and my parents and everybody. So we all get together every Sunday and no matter what was going on with us in a business, if there was a disagreement or not, show up at Sunday dinner and all that was left behind and we were awesome brothers again. So I had all of that going for us and, and it also meant that um, when we decided where he was actually, he started his own business and it took off and went really well. It just made that whole transition a lot easier because we, the big thing I think it came down to is absolute trust is, you know, in my brother, I have just such a high level of trust. So it made it easier to do that. That being said, I know of friends and other people who've done business with family and it's, it's really gone south. So it doesn't always work out that way. I was lucky and and we have a good relationship, but, um, uh, yeah, there's the, there's definitely a few pros and cons of doing it that way. Absolutely. And you touched on two things. One of the reasons I've done it before. So I was in business in a prior business that we've sold since with my brother and the trust thing was such a big thing, right? So I knew that I could trust my brother, that he wasn't going to steal from me, that he wasn't going to do something to my detriment. But to the other point, it's almost like we could never get away with from it, right? So it was business. And then when in social, personal social functions, it was still kind of carried over. So we weren't as good at delineating that. And I think that made it harder because it seemed like you could never get away from it. Yeah. Especially when you said you were living with your brother, you just need some space sometimes. So for me, that would be a (laughs) takeaway for people listening is you got to make sure that boundaries and some time when you, when it's not about business. Definitely. And I think, I mean, the other thing that we, we didn't actually do it very well. uh, And I, in fact, I didn't do it very well in another relationship that wasn't family and ended badly because of it is, uh, you know, I mentioned not having a shareholders agreement. Uh, I would recommend for anyone, a partner, family or otherwise, get a pretty clear written document uh, in place before you go into business together as to what your understanding is in terms of what the share of the company is. And in particular, what happens if someone decides to leave at some point or, you know, isn't really participating? That's all that's I find is is usually the biggest pain points in a partnership is if one guy or one person, one girl is out, uh, wants to leave or is just saying, yeah, I'll stick around, but I'm not really going to work very hard on this. Those are the areas where if you can plan for it in advance and make it really, really clear how there's an exit strategy, it just makes it easier because then you just pull up the document and say, well, we agreed that. If I was going to leave, I was going to give back a portion of my shares to you and walk away fine. Then that just makes everything easy. Otherwise, you're stuck stuck arguing about it at the time that it happens. Yeah, I think, Greg, that's a huge takeaway. I I fortunately have always done it that way. And in fact, most recently with a friend of mine who we've been in business together now on other companies for quite some time, we have spent what seems like an inordinate amount of time kind of crafting this partnership agreement, but it's critical. And to your point, it's amazing what people will think was the assumption or what I thought <laughs> you meant, right? Yep. Especially if it gets a little bit tense, everybody has a very different view of what that conversation meant or what I thought you intended to do. And so you have to get it in writing. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let, let's stay on the topic of people and start to dive in more about building a business. I know this emphasis on people is a big thing for you, and I believe you consider it a key component of your success in business. But let's just start at a high level and your, your emphasis and focus on taking care of your people. Well, the, the first step is finding amazing people. That's, that's the big thing for me is making sure that everyone we add uh, is, is an A player, is absolutely amazing in addition to the team. And that actually takes care of a big part of taking care of the people who are already on the team. Because if you have amazing people and you bring someone in who's not carrying their weight uh, or of the same kind of participat- 
participation caliber as the others there, then it will bring down the overall morale and people will start to wonder what they're doing there and why they're participating on a team with someone who isn't contributing. Uh, so for me, that's the biggest part is making sure that we have the amazing people. If you do that, a lot of the other things take care of themselves. Certainly not everything. You have to be pretty vigilant. Uh, the next piece is having uh, taking some time to really work on people and culture and values and how uh, and, and making that a really important piece of the business. In fact, one of the most important pieces and, and for us, probably the most important and so for us, that meant even just taking the time to articulate uh, some of our core values and uh, make sure that everyone on the team is really on board with them and living them and happy with them. Uh, things like that, I find, help a lot. And then taking great care of people as much as we can. Uh, and uh, and for me, I think a, a piece of it that's it's not actually really even articulated in our core values, but it's something that I, I definitely hold on to. Uh, my brother actually gave me this advice. Early days in our company, I was coming in, working really crazy hours, hard, heads down, getting the work done, you know, grumbling at other people if they weren't getting their work done, and then walking out and not even really going for lunch with people. I was terrified. It was, I don't even know how I got into this. This is not normally me. But he sort of said to me, he's like, you know, you should just come into the office and have fun. Uh, just, just take a day or two and just say, I'm not going to get any work done. I'm just going to come and have fun with some people. And so I, it, that really stuck with me that he even thought he needed to tell me that. So I just try and remember that life isn't about making millions or uh, winning the game of business or anything. It's about people enjoying their lives and people spend a lot of time at work, uh, especially if you're growing a successful company. So it's just making sure that the whole experience is uh, something that people look on day to day and look back on at the end of a month or a year and say, I'm so glad I'm doing that. It's such an amazing life I'm living and this is a big part of it. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you have to make everything easy for them and say yes to everything that people say. You definitely can have some hard conversations, but uh, delivering so that they can say this is an amazing experience is, is pretty key. Yeah, so much good stuff there, Greg. I'm trying to break it down a little bit because it's so key the whole building of the culture. But I want to touch first on that role that you play. I think of the challenge sometimes entrepreneurs have as they become leaders within the organization as you start to grow is we, we kind of think that that other stuff, that being casual, that spending time with people, that sitting down for lunch, that having fun is not moving the business forward. I got to be working, right? But in fact, once we understand that that is part of our role and our job is to create that you know, that, that part of the culture, we understand that I, I need to do those things. It's not just because it's fun, but I, I need to do that to help nurture the culture, right? Definitely, yes. And then you talk about uh, the ways that you instill culture, because this is such a tough thing, is people give this a lot of lip service, but don't know how to actually make it happen. It's about articulating the core values, as you said, and taking care of the people uh, what else, and maybe it falls in the category of taking care of the people, what else is an example of how you guys continue to instill and, and nurture that culture that you have? Uh, well, one of, our, one of our core values is that we celebrate successes together. So we have a big gong in the office and we have a big, someone has a personal success or we have a big team success, we'll ring the gong. Uh, and if it's really big, everybody kind of lines up and takes a crack at it. It's quite loud. <laughs> so that's a bit of fun. But then even beyond that, we, we set regular goals. And when we hit them, we do something fun as our team. So we'll go on a trip together or we'll go have a boat party or we'll rent a cabin up at Whistler and go uh, spend a, do a bit of a retreat up there. 
uh, or or smaller goals. We'll do something like we did. A, they have these escape rooms now in Vancouver. So we've been doing and we've done one of those, which was a lot of fun or even just going out for for drinks or dinner as a team. Uh, but setting goals together, meeting them together and then going out and celebrating together is a big part of it as well. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, how many employees are you at at Thinkific now? We're at 35 today and uh, waiting to hear on a few uh, we're working on hiring as well. So are you still able to be part of every hire process or where are you with that? I've been part of every one that I've been in town for. There have been a few times when I'm a, we were, we went through a good stretch of hiring sort of one a week and I had a couple of weeks out of town on uh, for conferences and, and so missed being part of a few and came back to people being hired. Um, uh, but part of having amazing people on the team is that the people who are handling a lot of the recruiting and hiring right now are taking such an amazing job of it that I'm, uh, I get to come in and, and be involved, but uh, don't need to be involved to make sure that we get great people on the team. Yeah, and then that happens, obviously, as you start to get to a certain side, it's just, just it's not physically possible. But yeah. if you, when, is, when you do get involved in a process or even the process that you've implemented, what are you looking for in someone before you hire them? We, we really dig a lot into uh, history as opposed to the future. So I, I find in some interview processes, people ask questions of what would you do in a scenario like this? Or let's role play or let's imagine you're doing this or um, let's give you a scenario and, and, and or a project to work on. And we do a little bit of that, but a lot of it is actually just looking back and say, tell us about a time when something like this happened. So tell us, tell us about a time when you had a conflict with a coworker. Let's dig into that. And then we dig and dig and dig and try and get past the pre-scripted uh, salesy first couple of answers of any interviewee and into, you know, the real feelings and thoughts and, and processes in the matter. And so you can do that. You, you have different core values that you're looking for or different specific skill sets you're looking for in a role. And for each of those skill sets, we'll have a bunch of different ways that they could kind of uh, exemplify them. And then we'll dig into stories about that. And if they don't have stories, if, if a really important part of the role is, is say, um, dealing with, uh, with clients because they're maybe coming into a sales role and they don't have stories about dealing with clients, well, that's probably a good indication that they're you either should be bringing them into a very, very junior position in the role or a completely different role or they're just not a good fit. Uh, so we really dig into the historical because that's the one thing that, uh, you know, especially in people, historical is very indicative of future. And, uh, and it's something that it's, uh, it's a lot harder to just kind of make up on, sp on the spot when you're a good salesperson. Uh, if you're, say, asking someone, you know, how would you act in this situation, which is easier to just fudge. Yeah. Do you use any kind of assessment tools through the process? We have, so we've developed an assessment, uh, so it's a bit different than say like DISC or, or um, some of those other personality assessments, Myers-Briggs. We haven't started using any of that stuff yet, uh, although I'd love to get into it. We're looking at that stuff now, but we do have an assessment of skills, a project that we give every person, but it's different for every role. So if we're hiring someone on as an, in a software developer position, we'll give them a specific project to demonstrate those skills. Uh, and the same for, say, support or uh, another role. But each each has its own different assessment. You've gone through at least one significant pricing model change. So tell me about that and kind of some of the takeaways for business owners who are listening and are maybe posed with that decision on pricing and making what seems like a dramatic or drastic change in a pricing model. Yeah, pricing. pricing I'm, I'm doing some reading on that right now, and it is – 
it's the that's a, a rabbit hole that you can spend so much time in and uh, so I think that that people can definitely spend too much time early on trying to figure out the perfect price. You're never going to get it perfect on the first go round. I think that's the big thing is to realize that it's an iterative process and we'll probably price too low at the start, especially because at the start, we're not even really sure exactly what we're offering or uh, we haven't really refined our offering yet. So I'm kind of a fan of getting something out there into the hands of people, experimenting with it and then continuing to iterate and experiment on it. I lived that a lot with my online course. Uh, when I launched that, I started at $29 and it's gone through just one plan, $29, that's it. And it's gone through a whole bunch of different variations from payment plans, monthly plans, uh, you know, three different purchase points and different bundles and packages uh, and it arrived at something very, very different than what we started at. And we're still experimenting a little bit with it. Uh, with Thinkific, we haven't made a ton of pricing changes, uh, partly because we have such a decent sized customer base now that it's a little intimidating to go in and change prices. Yeah. With Thinkific, we haven't done a ton of pricing experimentation for a variety of reasons. I think one is just having the time to invest in it. Another is the size of our customer base makes it a bit t intimidating to change pricing too much. Uh, we are looking more and more at it now and looking at ways of doing experimentations that don't affect our existing customer base. So obviously ethically, we would grandfather people in if we were to do something like a price increase. We we did make an early change, so we, we experimented actually quite a bit with pricing in the early days, and then we finally hit upon a, a pricing model that I think worked quite well, and we saw a noticeable shift in our growth curve there. So literally, the, you look back historically, and you can look at the day we changed the pricing and see a, a, a vertical shift in, your, in the price, well, a, a change in angle of the growth curve, which has affected everything all the way up to this day. And I think looking at everything I have around pricing, it really comes down to trying to figure out where you add value. So as opposed to pricing on features or benefits or, well, benefits is kind of value, but really figuring out where you add value and where you add increasing value uh, to your clients and being able to price on that. So what is their, what's their desired outcome and what's the experience that they want to have to achieve it? I actually read something really interesting just recently around this that you can give someone a desired outcome, but if you don't give them the experience getting there uh, that they expected or wanted, they may not actually feel successful and feel like they got enough value. So the example given was someone flying on Southwest Airlines and getting off on the far on the end of the trip and just grumbling to themselves because you know they didn't think the seats were big enough and they didn't like the service and it just wasn't that comfortable. And this is a you know someone who's used to maybe flying first class or business. But they're not really their ideal customer. The ideal customer for Southwest might be someone who's looking to save money on the flight, uh, was happy to pay the cheaper fare and just get there and they're totally happy with the experience because what they wanted was the cost savings element of it. So just interesting to look at that and, and kind of segment your customers and think about not only how am I adding value and what result do I want to get these people, uh, but what is the experience they want to have in getting there for each of my different customer segments or customer personas, and then pricing based on that, uh, as opposed to all the other ways to price, like just guessing. <laughs> yeah, great point. So the pricing model you have now is one of the reasons we decided on the Thinkific platform. So it definitely was something that influenced our decision. I'm fascinated by, fascinated by the whole topic of pricing. What, what's the book that you're reading on the topic? Uh, actually, just a ton of blog posts. So I've just been, uh, searching around. I wish I could remember the name of the person who wrote that, uh, 
that post. It's like 16ventures.com, I think, is the 16 Ventures pricing for software. Okay. Um, and, and gentlemen had a whole bunch of great posts on, on this pricing strategy and pricing theory. Uh, I've actually got an online course now on pricing on how to price in particular online courses. Okay. Uh, and, uh, it, it works pretty well. Some fair amount of experimentation in there. I can, I'll share it with you. Yeah, that's fantastic. The book I read recently called priceless is on this topic. It's a, it's not an easy read cause it gets pretty deep into it, but it's fascinating stuff. All right. It's called priceless price, priceless priceless. Oh, priceless. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, great, great read. Um, all right, so let's move into a little bit more about growing a business and some of the takeaways for our listeners. There are, we have a lot of our listeners who are small business owners like myself who are always looking for ways to grow. Obviously, you've been able to realize some really rapid growth. Uh, what are some of the takeaways on how to do that, to start small and then grow rapidly? Uh, one, well, one thing I'm loving lately from another book, uh, by, called, uh, great by choice is fire bullets than cannonballs. Uh, and it's, it goes by the same principles of say the lean startup and Eric Ries. And it's basically to run experiments, small experiments that are not a huge expense of time or money or distraction, measure the results of those experiments. And then for the ones that work, double down on them or triple down or 10 X down on them. And, uh, and that's really been how we've focused on, on so much of our growth is if you run an experiment and it works out great, then do a lot more of it. Uh, so for example, we ran a few experiments recently where we sponsored some live in-person conferences and events. And to be honest, it didn't work out very well for us. So now we know, okay, we don't want to go and develop a massive budget and a huge plan to sponsor tons and tons of events because those aren't working. Uh, whereas say other channels like, uh, our our blog uh, does quite well, so it, it merits investing a lot more into say content marketing and develop content. The blog's a funny one though because it's a it's a tough one to do a, a quick easy experiment because it usually content marketing takes a bit more time to to really see the results. But there's often ways that you can uh, at least verify that there's something there for the content side for you. Yeah. yeah, it's a great takeaway and it's something that I think we all need to try to apply. It doesn't always translate as easily, and I'll come back to that point in a moment, but this approach of getting something out there and testing as a pro, as opposed to me spending six months or a year developing this grand new function feature product service that then I put out to the market and the market doesn't respond. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, especially on the product side or, or the, the bigger expense areas, um, of, of investing a much bigger dollars or time into it. That can be really dangerous if you haven't confirmed that it's going to fly for you. Right. It's harder, as, as I was alluding to, for a brick-and-mortar type business, a more traditional business, because I might make a decision, all right, I'm going to invest in this piece of equipment, for example, to offer this new service, and I can't do one without the other. So it's harder to do. I get that for our listeners thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me. But there's different ways that you can apply that approach in your business. And I think even, as you alluded to, in marketing is a good example of where you can do that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, even on the equipment side, I think you can usually find a way. I mean, on the equipment side, you could maybe run an experiment of uh, advertising that you provide that service and then just get it from the place down the street. I mean, I, I went into a restaurant the other day and they didn't have what we wanted. They ran to the one next door and got it. They didn't even tell us that's what they were doing. Uh, so you could you could probably do something like that if, uh, if there was someone nearby who also provided the services, just buy through them. Uh, until you validated that enough people are going to get this from you that you want to go and get that expensive piece of equipment. And you've, we've even seen, I think uh, Progressive Insurance famously did this where they wanted to move into uh, standard insurance uh, and 
and they did they could have rolled it out to all of their different states and locations uh, but they started by just trying it in a couple of states and verified that it worked um, and uh, or it was I don't know, auto or standard or home I think they experimented with the auto and it worked so they rolled it out everywhere then they experimented experimented with home and it didn't work so they didn't roll it out uh, but uh, you can you can figure out ways I think even in, in some of the brick and mortar stuff you're right though it's it's it varies obviously on the on the how accessible an experiment is to you. Right, yeah, but great point about partnering and, and figuring out different ways that you might be able to test it before you fully commit to it. You might be able to lease a piece of equipment, for example. So you're yeah. right. there's a lot of different ways that you can apply that philosophy. All right, since we're on the topic of marketing, talk to me about social media, if you will, and your thoughts. The small business owners are so overwhelmed by social media because we don't know where to start or how to use it. And it's funny, I've been giving this a lot of thought as I spend a lot of time, for example, on YouTube and other platforms. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that the big guys are still doing the traditional type of advertisement that we're being told as little guys don't doesn't work anymore. And I'm almost trying to think that the whole social media is about getting money from the little guys to spend. But <laughs> does it work is, is my question. How have you guys used it and what has worked for you? Well, I've, we've had lots of successes and lots of failures on the social side. Uh, one success for us has been YouTube. Uh, one success has been Facebook. Uh, we've never done so well on, say, Twitter and Instagram, uh, but we also haven't invested a ton there. I, I think that the approach that's always worked for me across a few different businesses is to pick one channel, uh, go deep on it, learn it really well, understand it well, and engage authentically with your audience. So as opposed to just thinking, I've got to post a lot to Twitter or I've got to post a lot to YouTube or I'm going to have a Facebook page and just put stuff there all the time. You want to engage with people and make friends and find out why they're there and find out what they like and talk to them and help people. The biggest thing for me is just getting in and helping people. Uh, so with my YouTube channel, everything I did on it for both both AlphaScore, the LSAT course, and then for Thinkific uh, has been about helping people on the LSAT or helping people build a business uh, around uh, online courses or online education or using online education to build the business. So by being really, really helpful and engaging with people there, uh, that's worked really well. And the same with Facebook, which has been huge for us, is just directly one-on-one, -on -one, lots of engagement with people. Uh, you don't really get to the, uh, well, we really haven't even seen the point yet where we're so big where we can't do that. And I see even huge companies billion dollar companies who are still finding ways to engage one-on-one -on -one with people in social media. So I think that's really, I do see a lot of people who just get in and start scheduling some tons of things and not actually engaging with people there. Yeah, great, great points. Do you still have social media marketing in-house or have you outsourced that? Uh, no, we still do. We still do it in-house. Largely, I think because Everything we do is so personal yeah. and specific. Is and what you were last making, you're, you're, you're having conversations more so than blasting out a campaign. Exactly, yeah. And so if, if, we're in, if someone was going to be doing it for us, they'd have to be essentially a contractor on extension of our team who really understands our product because you can't hang out in our Facebook group and, and talk to our customers without understanding what we do really deeply. In fact, everyone on our team has built their own online course using Thinkific. So uh, if you don't have that experience, it's really, really hard to get in there and be a part of the community. Great points, good takeaways. All right, we'll shift to online learning now. And some of these questions are selfish for me and for my because <laughs> we're in the process of building some platforms. But um, let me ask you this broad question. What makes, what makes an effective online course? 
Oh, good one. Okay, an effective online course to me is one where the students are successful. And the students are successful when they achieve the result that you promise them. So you say, when you finish this course, this is how your life is going to be different. This is how I'm going to change your life or maybe in your case, change your business. And you want to them to achieve that result. And the metrics I measure to get them there are, did they finish the course or get close to finishing it? Because if they're not moving through the course and eventually finishing it, there's no way they're getting value no matter how awesome the course is. So that's a really big one. Uh, and then the, the next one is, are they retaining and recalling information from the course? So they actually learning something from it. And then finally is, is uh, I, I used to really just track those two, but lately more and more, I've been looking into ways to track the, are they, are you actually delivering on your promise? And so there's some relatively easy ways to do these things. Things like, are you delivering on your promise? You could always ask people up front if let's say your, your promise is take this course and you will double your uh, revenue in your business. You ask them up front, where's your revenue at in a quick little survey and you ask them at the end or a few months afterwards, where's your revenue at? Have you doubled it? Uh, and then you can, well, I wouldn't ask them, have you doubled it? Cause they might not remember what they told you in the first place. I just ask them again, where's your revenue at? And then you can see, Hey, I'm being successful. Yeah. And I think sometimes we, um, we might be hesitant to hear the answer, right? So we, that might keep <laughs> us from asking the question, but it's a yeah. great test as to yeah. whether this is really being effective. I get to finishing the course. We technically can monitor that. Uh, retaining and recalling, are you doing quizzes and testing throughout? Is that part of how you develop a course? Yeah, so it's actually tied in with the finishing the course, but one thing I love to do is what's called formative assessment. So it's a quick, uh, it's a quiz, but it's one or two multiple choice question that's super easy and it's just checking to see if you are following along. So it's not about are you really smart and you understand this at some deep level. It's just simply were you paying attention and ideally, everyone's getting 100% on every quiz and you drop them in every two to seven minutes as or every five to 10 minutes throughout your course just to keep people following along. And it does a whole bunch of things. It makes them focus more, makes them think about the material. It stops them from just, say, watching or listening and has them go back and actually go through the mental exercise of processing it, which helps with the learning process. Uh, and it provides a really great incentive for them to keep moving because they keep getting this Cha-ching, you just got 100% on a quiz, keep going, move on to the next one. Uh, it's really effective and we see something very, very similar in actually video games and it's part of what makes them so addictive. So we've tried to build a lot of that stuff innately into our product so that most people don't have to worry about it. Uh, but it does make a really big difference in terms of getting people to finish and ensuring that they're actually learning and recalling information from it. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. It, that's the other thing we were looking for in a platform is that we, we called it that gamification. I don't know if that's the right term for it. Exactly, yes. <laughs> add, add that component to it to improve the learning and the success. So obviously yeah. you can have a very effective course, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's financially successful. So that's where the marketing comes in. Yes. Um, you guys, have you used or have you tried or do you recommend webinar funnels as one way to draw clients to a course? Uh, I, so I don't actually use them anymore for my personal online course, but that's purely a matter of time because I'm dedicated hundred percent to Thinkific and mine is kind of on autopilot. Yeah. I know that if I were to do it, I could probably double my revenue in a month, which would be significant. So yeah, I see people doing amazingly well with webinar funnels and it doesn't have to be a, you know, there's, there's so many, I just saw a new way of doing it the other day where you basically just hop on Facebook live and you do a lot of your stuff through Facebook live as opposed to a specific webinar platform. So there's so many different ways to do it. But I think the key thing is that you're getting people in 
you are sharing great knowledge with them in some kind of live online format, and, like a webinar or a Facebook Live. You're answering a lot of questions. You're getting people excited. You're sharing with them that next step, which is you can take the course and, and giving them the opportunity to sign up for it, usually with some sort of time-sensitive incentive to get in there and do that. And that can definitely see a huge uh, uptick in, uh, in people signing up for it. Um, in fact, we do webinars for Thinkific. So we bring people in uh, regularly throughout the week. They, part they can come and join a webinar. The webinar is all about value add. So it's a lot of advice about creating courses and building your business with courses. And, and then we share Thinkific and people ask questions about how it works and can I do this and can I do that. So you get over some of the um, qualifying sales type questions as well in that. And, uh, and we just help people in it. And in the end, we say, hey, you can sign up for free if you want. Check it out. Uh, and that works really, really well for us. So I definitely believe in the webinar funnel side of things. Yeah. And that, so that tied with a free trial is a great uh, approach. The, the webinar, though, as you touched on, you have to actually provide some value. I know for me as a consumer of them, if it's just a blatant commercial, you know, I'm going to stop. I'm going to quit. I'm going to drop out. So it's got to, you really have to deliver some value. That's the key in my experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that definitely, uh, it, it creates a whole different relationship with your audience. If you, if you're always providing value when they show up. In fact, I've seen some people now doing, uh, I saw Chris Brogan doing this and, and Steve Dotto, who I think was learning from Chris, where they charge to come to their webinars. So say they're doing a webinar on how to build your blog audience. Uh, they'll charge you 20 bucks to show up and come to the webinar because that webinar they've researched for months and put years of experience into it and they're going to provide a ton of value in the webinar and they'll tell you in advance, I'm also going to try and sell you an upgraded course from this webinar, but it's still $20 to attend the webinar because I've put so much into it and you're going to get so much value and uh, just the webinar itself is such an extreme value and I think they've done quite well with that process too. Yeah, I can see where that makes a lot of sense sometimes also with people having skin in the game so they actually show up. That's such the big challenge yeah, yeah. with free webinars, right? Yeah. Just a, such a low uh, turnout rate. But, yeah, great yeah. tactics. What, what else comes to mind or what else have you seen other successful course providers from a marketing perspective that people should think about? Well, back to the pricing piece, that's a huge part of your marketing. So you can find a course that is unsuccessful at one price and wildly successful at another. And there isn't, I mean, we have a program that kind of helps people with the pricing. And again, I can, I can share, if, if you want, I can even share the link with you to, to share with your audience. If you have show notes, we can put it in there. Absolutely, absolutely. Great. So that, the, the um, but I have seen the, the sort of average range I see a lot of courses is sort of two to $400 and doing well there. A uh, thousand to $2,000 is sort of your, usually a bigger ticket program. There's definitely ones that go higher than that, but they're a bit more extreme. But $1,000 to $2,000, usually you're having a bunch more included in that program beyond just taking a, a, an online course with some videos and some quizzes in it. Uh, but then I also see people being wildly successful with even $10, $20, $30 a month courses because they're building a recurring subscription revenue and constantly adding value. So something like if you're teaching someone an artistic skill or a craft or something like that or a fitness thing and you're coming in and regularly updating and providing new material that they can use on a regular basis, you might be able to build that recurring subscription revenue from your course, which is another great way to do it and build up a, a nice ongoing passive revenue. Yeah, that's that's great. So yeah, we'll definitely have that link to get some more knowledge in the course that you mentioned on pricing. I think that would be fantastic. I know I'll, I'll be looking at it. Um, 
All right, so before we move on to the next topic, I was just looking at my notes on some of the other reasons we selected Thinkific. Uh, we are early days, so we have not released a course yet, so that, that I want to make sure everybody's clear on that, and we'll talk more about it in subsequent episodes once we do. But the, the, the richness of the features was a key component, the pricing model, the ability to private label, all of those were key things for us that uh, helped us decide to go with Thinkific. Excellent, thanks. That's uh, it's always wonderful to hear. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, let yeah. me take a personal turn now, ask you uh, this question. If you think back, is there a decision that stands out, and there might be multiple ones, but I'd like you, if you could share one decision you've made in your life that you think has had a significant positive impact on your life and on your business? Well, I, I mean, there's there's a few big ones. The, the easy ones are, uh, let's see, well, leaving leaving my career as a lawyer and diving full time into creating my own business, getting married, and having a daughter. So um, let's. <laughs> what do you what do you hear less of on the show of <laughs> those? Because they all seem like they're kind of a lot of decisions that lots of other people can make and do. And uh... <laughs> no, no, that's that's great. I, I was I would, I commented because I have a daughter as well, and so I understand that that soft spot yeah. that develops for a father yeah. when you have a daughter. And then she's just gone off to college. <laughs> it's even oh nice. <laughs> She's our only child, but yeah, no, that, that everybody has a yeah. different perspective on what yeah. really those impactful moments yeah. have been. Um, <coughs> what I want to go back well, to leaving your, your job, your career as an attorney, what was the kind of the pushback you got from friends and family about <laughs> that decision? Yeah, it, certainly. I think a few people thought I was a bit crazy to be giving up the, the revenue potential there, but um, I, I saw it as it was actually almost a detriment in that I always saw it as a fallback. So I knew that as I was leaving, I could go back to it. And that's kind of how I justified it to friends and family who were questioning my decision. Uh, but I was lucky. I got a, a pretty decent support from everyone around me that, um, okay, well, if that's the decision you want to make, that's great. And especially when they know, I guess you can always go back to law if you want. Uh, but I actually found that concept of having a fallback uh, was almost, yeah, detrimental because I think, you know, the people who are, out there building a business knowing it's it's this or it's make or break uh, there's nothing to fall back on uh, sometimes you it drives you a little bit harder and I, I had to push a little bit harder to, to really stay motivated knowing that I did have a fallback option yeah very insightful so I know you're um, maybe I guess I would classify it as a bit of an adrenaline adrenaline junkie <laughs> I know you're into kiteboarding and that kind of stuff that would uh, destroy me if I upon impact <laughs> but that leads me to this question. What do you love most about what you do today? Uh, at work? <laughs> Let's start with work and then we'll, tell, we'll go personal. Uh, yeah, the, the, the thing I think I get the biggest high out of that gets me up in the morning is the stories we hear about. It's probably similar to you, actually. The stories we hear about successful companies and successful businesses that we've impacted uh, so <laughs> we just saw one. Someone just shared one this morning. We share it constantly amongst the team. Uh, and I actually had a dream the other night that someone had kind of created a wall here and we'd put up all these printouts of all these wonderful stories that we get from people and sometimes even videos. But someone shared one this morning uh, that someone had gone online onto some review site and written a Yoda-esque poem about uh, Thinkific and their experience with it and the impact it was having on them. So it was in the voice of Yoda with his kind of uh, cadence and rhythm in language. Uh, and uh, it was just really cool because they actually, they said a bunch of nice, th nice things about us that match up perfectly with our brand promises and the things we've built internally as to what we want to really be for people. 
but we haven't yet communicated them publicly. So it was just really cool to see that alignment of, we promise you amazing customer support. And she mentioned your team is absolutely amazing and how much they support my business. So for me, the, the thing that is the most exciting is, uh, is the people we get to impact and the businesses we get to grow and, and the stories most of all about how that then changes someone's life personally. You know, I, I bought a new house or I was able to save for a new bicycle or whatever it is, even the little impacts, it's, it's pretty amazing to hear that. It is amazing. I mean, it's one thing to be able to create something, but when you create something and then you get validation of how it's impacted people, that's a whole nother thing. Definitely. The, the fact that someone, as you said, has articulated back to you, your culture, that means you're doing it right. On a personal level, what what is it that you love the most to do these days? I suspect it might have to do with spending time with your family. <laughs> well, I was going to say before I got I met my wife, uh, kiteboarding was was definitely oh, a big fun thing day. for me. Okay. Absolutely love it, tons of fun. But yeah, you're right. Now it's uh, my focus in life is family and work, and uh, I don't leave a lot of time for other stuff in there. But that's I have so much fun doing that, and. Um, you know, I I, uh, I make sure I'm home almost every night to to give my daughter a bath, and she's one and a half. Um, so uh, we have a lot of fun um, every morning and every night hanging out together, and um, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 it somehow. I was a little bit scared, to be honest, having kids and having a business and the impact that it would have on it, and would I have enough time? But I think I feel like I have more time now. Because uh, it's just really clarified priorities. So whereas before I might make more time for going out and doing you know, fun things outside of the house, I do less of that now. That's fine. That's a sacrifice. Uh, but because I'm doing less of that, I'm. Uh, it seems I just have more time available for uh, the things I care most about, like the business and family. Yeah, fantastic. Makes perfect sense to me. I, you will never regret the time that you're spending there, I can assure you. So uh, let's start to wrap it up. Give me the quick elevator pitch on Thinkific. <laughs> yeah, happy to. So it's, uh, I, I think we've touched on lots of it, but essentially our mission, our, our purpose here is to help businesses be more successful uh, through helping them create online education. And that could be to educate their uh, customers. It could be to sell courses, uh, to create the whole business around selling courses. Uh, but it, even a lot of existing businesses, even some brick and mortar are using online education now to educate people who interact with their business. So that could be clients and it could be selling the course to them. It could be clients and teaching them about their business or about something relating to their business or, or giving courses to clients almost as lead generation and marketing tools, uh, or even in some cases, educating employees. So we really want to be the platform that makes it ridiculously easy to do uh, all of that and build your business through online education. Wonderful. And books, you already mentioned Great by Choice. Is there another book you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, Great by Choice is a good one. Uh, another one on the building of teams is Who. Uh, I think it's by Jeffrey Smart. Uh, just H-O-8, sorry, W-H-O. <laughs> who. <laughs> that spelling of Who. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. Great. All right, we'll wrap it up with this final parting piece of advice or thought for our listeners. Well, I would say, well, something that we, we touched on only briefly, but figure out early on what your core values are in your business and stick to them even if it costs you money. Uh, if, if you don't stick to your core values, the things that are really important to you, when they start to cost you money or, or make difficult decisions, then they're really not core values. 
Um, and, and I think the key there to finding your core values is that it's about digging in and figuring out what they already are. It's not about picking them. We had a few core values early on that we sort of picked as things we'd like to be. Uh, and that, that rarely works. It's more about what you already are. Interesting point there. So, but what if I aspire to kind of evolve? How do you separate those two things then? Well, I think you can definitely set all sorts of goals and aspirations and we'd like to do this and we want to do that. Uh, but, uh, and maybe in time they become your core values. But to me, if, if it's core values, it's because it's already ingrained, usually comes through the founder or founders of the business and, it, and it's already in existence there and you're living it. And so you need to ask your question when you're picking it, are we already living this? What are some stories where we've really lived this already? Uh, because if you haven't, sure, you could set it as an aspirational core value and you might actually manage to ingrain that in your company culture. Great. Thanks for sharing that, Greg. And if you would just please let us know, where would you like our listeners to go to find out more about you and about Thinkific? Let's do, well, they can always find out us about us at uh, thinkific.com. And if you want, we can set something up for you uh, and your listeners at get get.thinkific, T-H-I-N-K-I-F-I-C.com slash, what should we do, uh, Lopez? Sure. Is that easy enough? Yep. Perfect. Uh, so we'll put that there. We can put some info about the pricing course there or put the pricing course there and, and a few other resources for people who are interested in getting started in online courses. Fantastic. We'll have a link to that if you didn't get that in the show notes page for this episode as well. That's a great offer, and I'll, I'll be going to it really quickly as well. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Greg, uh, I was uh, excited as I got this scheduled and was preparing for it, and it's turned out to be even better than I thought it would be. Thanks for taking the time to be with us, dealing with a couple of technical issues, and for sharing your knowledge and perspective. I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks, Andrea. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. This is Henry Lopez. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.